This episode of the Out of Bounds Podcast is brought to you by Fisher Skis. Hello, hello, hello. This is the Out of Bounds Podcast. My name is Adam Jabber. We have a good episode for you today uh, with Tim Johnson. Tim Johnson is the U.S. National Cyclic, or was the U.S. National Cyclocross Champion. He now works at Strava um, in team management team relations and marketing and all that good stuff so um tim is the shit um he is a boston boy uh that's traveled the world um he's now a boston man he uh he's he's cool he's cool as shit we're gonna call this lawnmower episode because he's like the whole time he's like moving with his phone in his hand um running around trying to avoid his neighbor i assume mowing the lawn so uh that was funny uh Shout out to the end of this episode where he just fucking rapid fires a bunch of random backcountry questions and talks about throwing a certain product in the garbage and and all that stuff. So, but the crux of the episode is talking about some current events in cycling, talking about what's changed since he started um, as far as an athlete perspective, whether things are harder, um, whether sponsors are harder to come by, whether it's harder to make money now versus then. Uh, and his answer surprised me a little bit. Um, I can see his point, and I think I agree with him. But um, it was a really interesting conversation. I've been wanting to have Tim on for a while, uh, and the Strava bit pushed me over the edge, uh, where I was like, "Okay, we have we have to do this." So, um, pretty short episode. He was a little tight on time. I was a little tight on time. So we're gonna have a second episode coming in the fall, probably. Um, the dude is uh, the dude's rad. Um, before. I get into ads and all that kind of stuff. Just want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Thank you for paying attention to any of the shit that we do, whether it's on social, uh, here on the audio version, on the video version, whatever. Thank you. Um, it's going well, and I owe a lot to you guys. I owe most of it to you guys. So thank you for that. Uh, before that, also before we get into the episodes, fucking subscribe to the YouTube. Just be involved in the YouTube. Just get... If you're not, if you're here and you're watching, just hit the subscribe button. Even if you never watch another video again, which be the, which would be to your disadvantage, hit subscribe. Just do it. Do it for me. You know, like dude, just do it for me. Um, we got a bunch of new reviews coming on the site www.outofpodcast.com. Uh, reviews, thought pieces, blah 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 blah. We got a really cool new format for it. Um, it I'm psyched. I'm psyched to show it. I'm psyched to start actually writing about gear because that's what this started as it's like it started as me wanting to talk about my experiences with gear and uh and yeah that's that's where it started uh anyway enough of me blabbing fisher skis has been a supporter of the show for a long time and they've been a supporter of the show because they believe in it but not just because they believe in it i believe in it um i believe in what they're doing i think they're growing at a substantial rate um, especially in U.S. market share, everybody knows in Austria, in Europe, like Fisher's a really, really, really big deal. They're a huge deal uh, to me, and they're a huge deal to people that ski the product because the product is always good. It skis just different. It's a high-quality product every single time. Um, so those Austrians, they don't, they don't fuck around when it comes to making a high-level product. Um, and they're not just a race company anymore. They have a full line of fun, exciting, playful skis in the new 
Ranger series. Um, I've been rocking the 102 as usual, uh, but I've also been on the 96 and the 106 and like the whole the whole deal. Um, they make incredible skis, and what's different about these is they have this new thing called Shape Ti. Basically runs through about 50 to 60 percent of the ski, where it's just a plate of metal, um, and it is size dependent um, for how much metal is in that ski. Uh, they're also paying attention to how much they impact basically just like how much they impact the environment. Um, they have 20 to 25% of all their skis and all the Ranger skis using recycled steel edges, which is huge. Like that actually, it may not sound like a huge number, but it makes a huge difference when you're making a bajillion skis to cut that number down to 20 to 25% is, is huge. Uh, more sustainable top sheets, uh, boots are getting better and better every single year. Shout out to Christoph. They have the best kids boot that will ever exist. Not ever, but they have the best kids boot that has ever existed for your little ones. Uh, Fisher one and two, check those out in the fall. If you have a little kid, it's worth the investment. These things will change the way that they ski and it will immediately make them have fun because the boot is easy to get onto. It's, it looks cool. Not that I don't know how much kids care about that, but you as a parent, like look at those boots they're fucking rad. and if they had a 27.5 i would buy one right now um anyway thank you to fisher skis as usual we don't have a code we don't have anything like they they just support us we support them buy some skis when you think about your summer skiing purchase think about buying a new pair of fisher rangers buy an old pair of fisher ranger ranger 102s i know there's still plenty of pink ski gang skis out there there's plenty of leftover hannibals out in the world both of those skis are incredible, and I've spent a ton of time on them. So, do that. Um, next, we have our friends at Mammut. Mammut has been a wonderful partner for us to work with. And the reason that they've been such a wonderful partner for us to work with is they make the best beacon in, like, the best beacon the most consistent beacon. Ethan is scrolling and scrolling and scrolling to find the best product that Mammut makes for some reason. But BerryVox. If you don't know about BerryVox, it's this thing right here. A lot of hair on my bracelet. Um, it's this thing right here. It's amazing. It's consistent. Unlike the Peeps and the uh, BCA and the whatevers of the world, which Peeps is a piece of shit. The BD one's a piece of shit. The uh, BCA tracker is not a piece of shit, but there is a recall right now, so we should mention that um, unrelated to the sale of these things. But if you are going to buy a new beacon, yours got recalled. This Berry Box or Berry Box S is amazing. Locking mechanism worth mentioning. You got to push down on this for anything to lock or unlock um, from send. Um, or search, which is like, that is why so many pro athletes use this, even if it is not their primary sponsor, they use this beacon. So beacon shovel probe, uh, these guys do it the best. Um, also make airbags, also make some awesome clothing, super technical outerwear. Uh, if you want to save 25%, 25% on the best beacon, use promo code out of bounds, 25 to save 25% off at mammut.com. Why wouldn't you do that? Like 25% off? They were like, oh, you want to run a code for 25% off. Mammut, Berrybox, Beacons, Berrybox S, whatever you want. 25% off. Use promo code out of bounds 25. 
Cool. Um, that's it for today. Enjoy this episode with Tim Johnson. More episodes coming down the pipeline. I am thrilled. We're going to do tons of stuff. We're riding bikes. We're going to local trailheads. We're going to races. We're doing all kinds of shit. We're going to events all over the fucking place. I hope to see you there. Hope to see you in real life. That's the best part about doing this is like going out and hanging out with people in real life and riding bikes in real life and going skiing in real life. This is cool. But like, let's hang out. Um, enjoy. Peace. Tim, why don't you tell people who you are, a little bit about yourself, and then we'll kind of go from there. Uh, well, I'm Tim Johnson, uh, originally from just north of Boston. Everyone I talked to is like, oh, where? It's like, well, I grew up in Middleton <laughs> and have lived everywhere before moving back to uh, Topsfield for a long time. And uh, so my roots, my roots are strong in Massachusetts, but kind of grew up in New Hampshire also. Okay. Um, I work at Strava, uh, athlete partner manager, which is kind of a fancy way of saying that anytime we work with athletes at a high level, um, kind of our team is the ones figuring out how to best support them. Okay. Um, i out of sport for like seven years now. Okay. Seems like yesterday. I get, uh, I get reminded of it when I go to a bike race, like rule of three in Bentonville, Arkansas over the weekend. <laughs> and I'm like, holy shit. Not only do I know a lot of people, but I also have known them for a really long time. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel my age pretty quickly. Yeah. It's uh it's funny. I went and I was like doing the wiki research and I'm like, oh cool. Tim's life oh, stops no. at 2014. <laughs> His life just completely <laughs> ends. Like there's no, like everything is like gone. And I was just like, no. that doesn't seem to be right. But I guess that's just when Wikipedia is like, Wikipedia is like, okay, you're done bike racing all the time. Like, and that's it. Wait, you mean I should get in there and start editing my own Wikipedia? Yeah, dude. That's not psychotic you... <laughs> at all. <laughs> should go in there and just be like, yeah, I won gold medal in the Olympics last year. It was really cool. You know, real humbling experience. <laughs> dude, it's like that guy from the bike shop in DC that had like dude, kind of created his entire life. Oh my God. I read that thing <laughs> totally wrapped. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't put it down. I had no idea how long it was. Like Ian did such a great job with that piece, but Holy shit. Dude. That guy has problems. Dude, that guy is so insane. I was like reading that too. And I was just like blown away at the fact that someone could keep that charade going on for that long. And especially mm -hmm. in something like bike racing. Like it's not like he was just, he wasn't a good bike racer. Like at all. Oh, he, was like, he was, he was he the best good at apparently. All. Exactly. <laughs> it was, yeah. It's so I mean, bizarre. Yeah. That hit a lot of like, um, I guess maybe the power of a lie is that it relied on very obscure facts at a time when the internet really wasn't a thing. Yeah. But then if you know those obscure facts, there are other people who are experts in those obscure facts. And it's just <laughs> a matter of time before they find them and, and figure out that this guy is completely full of shit. I feel bad for everyone who interacted with him at all. And I, you know, I, if I need to go buy uh, an assault rifle i will definitely look that guy up it seems like he'd be a great guy to buy something off of that guy is yeah i part of me feels bad for him like actually feels bad for him because it's like he has to just be not like he has to just be crazy you know and it's, it has to be to a certain extent out of his control nuts because it's so and for people that haven't read this article like look it up it's it's so bizarre to just read it's the on thing. cycling tips yeah, yeah ian treller wrote it i can't remember the guy's name which is fine i yeah, don't want to totally know fine. 
Yeah, there's like an 18-part Netflix series coming on the same thing, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, dude, there's a lot. The cycling world has a lot of shit going on right now, and I guess we can, we'll talk about some of the other stuff, I guess, maybe a little later if we get into it, but it's it's crazy. Anyway, let's let's talk about you for a little bit here. Um, you got it. <laughs> being a New Englander has a certain stigma about it, especially if you're racing cross. Like, what... What does that mean for you? Stigma. What does being from New England do for you? Like, I don't know. First of all, you're from we, Mass. We can call those characteristics, yeah. <laughs> not not a stigma. They are. Yeah, they're facts. They're actual facts for every New Englander. Um, what does that mean for you? Have other people noticed this as you like? I mean, you've been everywhere, man. You've raced everywhere. You've kind of met so many different people. Is it is it apparent that you're from New England, like right off the rip? Well, I mean... <laughs> on, on my head right now video is a Red Sox hat. Yeah. So that's one way to find out. Um, while I don't have my mom's accent, I definitely grew up with one. Uh, my dad was from Lynn. My mom was from Salem. So you can imagine that mix. Um, my brother has one. But yeah, I mean, I, I think growing up in New England is like probably the best thing that could happen to a burgeoning career. And, and honestly, I never would have known about cycling unless I grew up here because I was just, um, you know, I was a kid who rode my bike, and my skateboard, like everyone else. I played soccer as a, as a, as a kid, I didn't grow up skiing, which you can get back to later, but, um, I just did a presentation on a program that we're a part of at Strava, the Miami Blazers. It's a, you know, kind of a crit team. And my introduction to cycling was through the movie rad. Like that's how I really? found out that you could even, be a pro bike rider. Like I had no idea. And then it was like BMX plus and like reading all those magazines and figuring out, wow, the, the one who wins the BMX grands gets like $5,000 in 1986, $5,000 in 86 is a lot of money. That's like winning $20,000 now, you know? So like, that was a huge thing. Um, but yeah, like I never would have been exposed to it unless they were easy to get to because we didn't have a lot growing up and it was, I found myself hanging out with guys who had a car, uh, who also had an interest in bike racing. And so I just went with them wherever they, wherever they went, you know, mm -hmm. until I got my own license and I was already hooked by that point. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the things I think you see a lot of people get into BMX and then they drop as soon as they get their license or they continue. And it's like, they make a career out of it. It seems like it goes one way or the other. And then at like 25, 30, everybody gets a BMX bike again and tries to like yeah. their youth a little bit, but there's like, um, you have to make it through like girlfriend, school, car <laughs> to like be able to get over the hump of, are you really in the sport for life or is, was it just something you did as a kid? And mm -hmm. so for me, bikes, like the more I got to do races that were in different parts of the country and travel and like see the world go beyond what just North shore of, of Massachusetts was like, I and I was still doing okay to like continue to go up those ranks. I mean, I was so hooked. I loved it. Yeah. Do you, so do you think that cycling has become more, more mainstream, more cool? Like I remember even 10 years ago, like when I started riding bikes and you're like out there and you're in tights and you're like riding these fancy <laughs> bikes, like it's so, especially in Western mass, people look at you like you're some kind of psycho, like, especially when you show up yeah. at the gas station, you're like trying to fill up on stuff. P people don't, they didn't get it. They seem to get it more now. I kind of wanted to get your perspective on how that's changed over the course of your career, like how other people outside of cycling look at you. Yeah, no, it's funny because the definition of a cyclist is like kind of always up for debate. Um, and 
to be a cyclist when I started, you were an alien. Like you stuck out like a sore thumb. Right. Um, you know, in terms of like being a mountain biker in the woods, it was definitely like a solo pursuit. You did it with a few friends and you got together at races. And that's really how you people mountain biked. Now you can never race a mountain bike, but be a lifelong mountain biker. You know, it's kind of mm. different back then. Um, but like being on the road, you know, I think about it like when I go for a road ride now, which is rare, I am terrified I'm going to get run over because <laughs> if someone's inattention, distracted, they're on their phone, whatever. When I was a kid, being out on the road, they had to be malicious. They had to want to kill you mm. to kill you. Like it was a very intentional act. Uh, usually like, you know, road rage of some kind. Now it's like anyone can do something to hurt another person. Mm. And I just like, I don't really have as much interest in it, but yeah, I mean, there are far more cyclists now than there ever were before. Um, I was the kid in school who shaved my legs that one time <laughs> as a senior and like, it's like, what am I doing? This is so weird. Um, I mean, I wasn't really road racing that much that I got into it after that, but, um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a community now that has been developed and and kind of cordoned off. Um, for some people, that's really inclusive, and they're like, "Oh, I want to be a cyclist. It looks awesome. Like, I want to go do gravel rides." Um, but for others, it's like, "Oh, I could never see myself wearing those goofy pants and and you know, sweating in like spandex. So I'm never going to touch it." So like, I don't know. We kind of wrestle with that all the time. No one really knows exactly what kind of um, impact you have on the community around you until you have an interaction. And there are a lot of people who are like, yeah, cyclists, man, I hate them. Yeah. <laughs> like, and then on the other hand, it's like cycling's my tribe. Like I want to, yeah. I want to be here more. I want to do as much as I can. Yeah. Yeah. I get, it's all over the place. Like I, I end up listening to Bill Burr a lot and you hear him constantly whining about people riding their bikes in LA. And he's just like, I fucking want to run these people over. These people are in the middle, of the, they're in the middle of the road. And yeah. you're just like, yeah, that's, yeah, hor- nice. that's horrible. But Nice I'm joking about that, dude. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it's too way too serious. Um, uh, yeah, I've been run off the road like three times in the last year, and it's literally just because people aren't paying attention. But on the on the inclusion part of it, I think gravel riding, gravel racing, and mountain bikes. I talked about this with John Watson. Was like, it's changed everything, especially lately, right? Like because people feel like they can just go on a ride, ride their bike wherever they want, and they have this tool that does it, right? Yeah. And that's, um, you, like I said, you had to be a racer to ride your mountain bike more than a little bit. Yeah. And it was just the way it was. Everyone met up at races. And so it wasn't really, it, it's just changed. And I, and I think it's an evolution more than change. Mm. And I'm happy to always see it continue in that, in that lens, because there are more ways to do the thing that's fun. Yeah. It's you don't have to go to a ski area to go skiing with backcountry skiing. So now there's more people skiing. It's like, you don't have to go and do lift serve mountain biking to be a mountain biker. And you also don't have to do a Tuesday night ride that meets up at 6 PM and, and go and does like all you can eat, um, Papaginos afterwards, which right. is exactly <laughs> the kind of mountain biking that I did in Lynn woods. You know, that was like exactly what we did. And, and I don't even know how many rides I did away from that ride. Yeah. Um, you know, until I, years later when I was like, I can, you mean I can just go for a ride on my own? Yeah. Like I don't have to join the ride at 6 PM on a Tuesday night. Like this is awesome. I can go anytime. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's. It, I think it's changed the way that people look at the sport so much, right? Because they see it starts with one person in a community, right? Where they're like, okay, this person's just out and they're riding their bike all the time, all of a sudden, especially with the pandemic. Like that obviously kickstarted a lot for the industry. And so many new people got on bikes and, you know, same old story. And, and I think that that was really, really impactful for just people feeling like they could just go and buy a bike, right? They feeling like yeah. they could just go and ride a bike, right? it almost feels like a gear was switched no pun intended for a lot of people in their head that like, this is a sport for this is a sport in general. And it's a sport for everybody. Well, I think it's even more nuanced than that. It's like before it was competition, then it was a sport and now it's an activity. Mm. And so activities are open to anyone. You can be, I can go for a walk and that's an activity. Like, um, mountain biking back then was definitely a race and you had to like hit a certain threshold to be a bike racer. Yeah. Um, and then it's like, Oh, you know what? You ride mountain bikes. I ride mountain bikes. I had no idea you did. Cause you're not like wearing this, <laughs> you know, very specific yeah. uh, example of like, this is the signal I give out because I'm a mountain biker. Now it's like, it is far more appealing and open and, and there's just a lot more of it. Um, you know, that's like being a Strava, you know, it started as, a really a, a place for cyclists and then it expanded to running and now there's like 30 different ways you can kind of track your activities um but i'm a i'm a biker like i'm a i'm a cyclist who also runs and skis and does all these other things but i'm a cyclist first so when we like do any kind of strava work um i definitely wear that hat you know inside the building so to speak even though we're all remote but um, i wear that hat inside the building yeah what what has it been like for you working at Strava? How long have you been there, first of all? And what what has the whole experience been like? Uh, so I just started in January. Um, I have been a user of Strava forever. I mean, 2010 was the first time I, I got on Strava. Um, I was one of their first athletes that they worked with. And we did, um, like we did a TV ad for the Tour of California and the Tour de France, um, where I actually took a shower. You can look it up. It's, <laughs> I, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, but it was a great, it was a really cool experience, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's doing great. I mean, as a company, it's amazing. Like I'm surrounded by people who love to be outside and if they're not outside, they're active and they're just trying to make it easier for people to do fun things like that's and be healthy. It's like all secondary, but the benefits just like keep coming. So oh, I think we have a lawnmower going on. I'm going to move. <laughs> Cut. Yeah. Pause. Um, yeah. Pause. That, that's, that's such a cool thing about Strava though. Like that, that actually is like one of my favorite things is that it's, it's social media for people that actually want to be outside. Right. It's tracking activities, yeah. but it's also like people engage with their friends and there's a lot of other kind of components that go into that but i think it's really nice that there's a way that you can be like hi i'm doing this it's really fun i'm outside and it's like social you're sharing it with everybody that follows you or your friends or whatever like that that part's always yeah. been insanely cool to me yeah no there's a huge community and and uh i don't know if it's out yet but it they just hit 100 million users around the world Sick. which is just an absolutely insane number um, part of what I'm working on now is I'm going to the tour and for the first time, 
the tour is going to be on Strava. No shit. So it's kind of like the ultimate in, I don't know, like if you're, if you like basketball or, you know, you're watching the socks, like whatever, whatever you're doing, a lot of times people just have a second screen now and it's an iPad or a, or an iPhone and they're like digging into it. Oh my God. It's so loud. Can you hear that? <laughs> it's not as bad as it, it is loud, but it's not that bad actually. Oh, shit. There's way, way, way worse things. <laughs> Pause again. Um, there's been way worse things. We've had like lines of motorcycles going by the studio, and you can just hear fucking brap, 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 brap <laughs> the whole time. So, Oops. It's it's all, right. all good. Doors, doors closed. Um, yeah. So I was saying that the uh, you know the the tour is on Strava. Like now you can look at. Um, all of the stages, all the riders, all the teams. And you can, if you've ever been lucky enough to ride any of those, you know, famous mountains and, you know, different passes, like you can, you can see how you would have done, which is <laughs> you know, undoubtedly getting crushed. Um, but you really see like what, what riders do to get ready for something like that. And, and yeah. it kind of like stops, it takes a little bit away of that, like imagination of these, these riders must be, aliens and on drugs yeah um because that's exactly the way that it had been for a long time certainly yeah. during my career um which is crazy and you know obviously <laughs> totally legit in a lot of ways yeah um but then you know for the women's tour it's just after um they actually start in paris the final day of the men's tour and continue on for another eight stages so for the first time the women's tour will be on there it's like i don't know for people who like bikes, it's going to be a great way to watch it and follow along. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's, that's amazing. I'm glad that's out there. And I think you make a really good point about people being able to go out there and kind of do those segments on their own and see how they would have stacked up. Like, because everybody, you so many times I've heard it in the bike shop, just playing the tour and you just hear something like, Oh, that'd be, it doesn't seem like they're going that fast. But I mean, yeah. dude, they're insane people. They're like that guy in the article. Like they're, they're all absolutely crazy if they think that's the case. <laughs> so I am excited for that to be out there. Um, what, can you talk to me a little bit about like the negative connotation of Strava? Like I want to talk through this because I don't think it's a big deal at all, but people mm -hmm. always talk about like Strava chasing or, I don't know, just blasting through Strava segments to like get a KOM on something, especially mountain biking, I think, yeah. and kind of the recklessness of it. I I actually don't think that it's a huge problem and I don't think that many people do it. Is there anything that Strava does that mitigates that at all, that kind of doesn't promote that kind of behavior? I guess because I love using Strava. Like I am an active user of Strava. I think it's nice. amazing. I am a total nerd about like how I did, where I stack up, like all that stuff. Yeah. But I also am like very cautious of people, especially mountain biking on the trail like that. Everything goes out the window. If somebody's walking their dog up the trail, right? Like I don't give a shit about the segment yeah. anymore. So yeah, exactly. is there anything that like that Strava does to mitigate that kind of thing? Or does that just like, it's on the person, like we're relying on humans to be good people. Well, I mean, kind of, well, both, certainly. Um, there, there are better ways to be a trail user, like trail, trail etiquette, establishing how you should act uh, versus how you could act, understanding that, you know, this is a place, if it's a bike-specific trail that's one direction, great, have at it, like, this is all you. Um, but that's not really the norm, you know, it's like, it's different everywhere you go. Um, I know that like 
it's kind of a community dependent thing because, you know, where I grew up, a little chunk of woods had trails in it and that's just the way we did it. And then, you know, the trails got more established. Maybe there were some new ones put in. The worst part of someone is like, I, I hate it so much. When I was mountain biking in like Topsfield or, you know, north of Boston and people will move a rock from a stone wall so they can go straight or not have to go up and over a stone wall. It's always some dude on a 150 millimeter bike (laughs) who, who should be able to do like a five foot straight drop, who is the one like you know, wincing as they're like trying not to squish their fingers and they move like an 80 pound boulder with their buddy standing around. It's like, don't do that. Like, don't do that. It's not worth it. And if it's for Strava, that's their problem. That is just ridiculous because it takes away from everyone else. Um, that, I mean, so there's that there's like, I think a benefit of Strava is that you can disseminate information for more people, um, all at once at scale. So like there's a, there's a whole new, uh, experience coming with maps, how they operate. There's points of interest, like typical start places. So it's like, you know what, if your trail network has any semblance of cooperation, there's going to be a sign that says, you know, A, are there other users? Who are they? Is it like horses? Is it hikers? Um, are there mountain lions? Like, great. Awesome. Put it on there. Like wherever you are riding that has any kind of structure will probably have that information out there and then Strava is the digital place for that to live you know you can really like if you're a responsible bike rider living near a trail network you should be volunteering you should be aware of what's happening if they have a club you should be a part of it you should be a paying dues member to like you know what when the trails are screwed we're going to get out there and we're going to fix them because Mm -hmm. we get to ride them all the time and so I look at it like um phases where somebody is super jacked and they just want to ride then they take all the risks then they either learn their lesson or get taught a lesson because they make a mistake and then they somehow will hopefully become an active member of the community and then we all get somewhere um you know and, and i don't know if i've have you seen this in in backcountry like where that initial excitement about oh my God, I get to go do this. I'm going to do every line I can possibly get, um, take huge risks and look like an idiot. Hopefully they stay alive. But in the meantime, you know, there's hope on the other side that they'll come around from that. Like, Mm. how is that playing out in the ski world? Is that similar? I don't know. I feel like the need for education in the backcountry is a lot different, right? Like that's the thing that gets pushed so hard in backcountry skiing is like, okay, get educated, get an Abbey one, at least do the basic stuff so that you can be safe out there. And so that you're not endangering other people. I think that part is very clear for a lot of people, but then there's some people who are just like, they just go and do it. And it's there, especially, I think you see it a lot in the, in the spring at Tux. People, it's like, the pilgrimage is going to talks and mm-hmm. just like hiking up in your sneakers and doing a couple laps. So people have that idea and they think they can go in the winter. And, and I guess that yeah. part is where it gets a little gray and a little dangerous to me. But I think for the most part, backcountry users are being pushed, especially since it's grown at this time of social media so much, everybody's on social. Everybody has an idea of kind of, 
what they need to know. And again, everybody's a real general term, but I, I feel like people are starting to come around to be like, all right, we need to know certain things. We need to have certain etiquette. We need to have respect for the trail. And I, I can at least say that about the New England stuff. Mm-hmm. Out West is maybe a little bit different of a story. Like you hear horror stories in the front range and, and all this stuff, but I don't know. I don't think it's that bad because the information is very accept- like very accessible versus I think in mountain biking, nobody really tells you the right way to go about trail etiquette that often. Am I, like, am I wrong saying that? I, I don't feel like there's any way. I, I don't know how you know unless someone tells you. Yeah, I think that that's the problem when it's decentralized. You right. know, it's like the bike shop is supposed to act a certain way within the community. But then that realized that whether or not the bike shop is getting the information right, or, you know, maybe it's a bike shop that's just like no one talks and they're grumpy yeah. <laughs> right. and no one actually gets any information out of them. Um, but I guess like, I don't know. I, I, I think that the, there, there is a huge range in mountain bike communities across the country where like you go riding in Asheville or, you ride in Bentonville where I just was or Colorado and BC and like, you know, Quebec, you know, kingdom trails, like the article in the New York times about kingdom trails this morning is, you know, that illustrates what is a very common thing when you rely on landowners welcoming other users onto their property. So that threshold should be super high, like how you act, why you act a certain way ride times trails close like that should be absolutely like clear as clear as a bell versus you know public terrain which is you know realist realistically open 24 7 um you know without as many restrictions but i don't know i mean that's that's a long nuanced conversation that will be different in, in every little region but they're all trying to get to the same place i think yeah yeah, and I think you brought you bring up Kingdom, and Kingdom is a kind of unique situation because it all is so many landowners making that happen, and as soon as they're unhappy, there's an issue, right? Like as soon as people stop respecting the fact that it is all landowners making that trail system work, then you have then you have issues. Um, and I think that there's not that's not every local trail system. That's I would argue probably pretty few of them, but you did start to see that a little bit in the backcountry. I forget where. It was, I want to say it was in, in Vermont at a trailhead at like a Rasta trailhead where some guy like ended up down the wrong line on some like very local backcountry zone. He ended up on mm-hmm. the wrong line, ended up basically in some guy's driveway by accident. The guy like pulled a gun on him, like huge issue. Like it, so that shit does happen in backcountry to that, in that regard, but I don't know. It, it doesn't happen as much. I don't think. I don't yeah. Know. It's, it's very, but you know, like what I was really impressed with, um, I went up to gas Bay and skied the Shick shock with, um, Sick. Ryan Atkins and, and Lindsay, his wife. Sick. And, and we went up there and couldn't believe that there were trailhead markers. There were avalanche reports. There mm-hmm. were beacon checks. Like it was set up like they expected you to be there, you know, yeah. and, and after getting into backcountry recently, you know, really like seven years ago, I guess now, um, I haven't always felt like I was illegal somehow either on a right. ski mountain 
what time on the ski mountain, which trail can you go up versus you can't. Um, and here we were on very like wild lines with variable snow conditions everywhere you look, it was different. And we were expected to be there. Like it made it so fun. You know, you, you dropped all the other stuff you're afraid of. You dropped like kind of that other layer of like, Oh shit, you know, if we got caught here, we're in trouble. Right. Um, I loved it. It was awesome. We had a great time. Yeah. Yeah. That part is definitely different. I feel like there's 15, I'm in Western mass and there's 15 different trailheads, you know, within 20 minutes from here. Right. Almost none of them are marked. Like it's that part is still crazy to me about mountain biking. And I remember having a conversation at like the local NEMBA meeting and them being like, oh, we don't want more trail markings. It's going to ruin the woods. And I'm just like, everybody uses the trails. You don't have to name them like Jeff's trail, but like at least make it so that everybody kind of knows that they're allowed to be there, that it's a multi-use trail and let people understand it. Like, put a kiosk in the fucking entrance, like in the parking lot. Like, yeah. do the minimum, you know? It's, uh, yeah. that part kind of drives me crazy. So, um, all right. I want to get a couple things here before I got to let you go. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is how it's changed, like, opportunity-wise, like, pay-wise, since you started to now, like, it, is there more opportunity? Is there less opportunity? Because you hear things like skateboarding, snowboarding, where there was way more money in contests, way more money in, you know, in the industry as a whole versus I would assume cycling, there's more money currently because there's more opportunity, right? Like it, people get to work with a brand like Strava. People get to work with individuals. Social media is an aspect that you can get paid for. Is that true or is it just like the top tier gets paid more and everybody else gets less? Well, I think, I think there's a, a lot of, there are a lot of similarities between uh, any other kind of creative like music or art or something where um, it depends on what you're doing and how your work is getting out there. So um, in terms of like, uh, in terms of music, you know, there were, there were only so many record companies back then and there were only so many radio stations and then you could buy a cassette or a CD or whatever. And so that was, you know, how people consumed music and then it became digital, which meant that the audience got larger, but the, the prices went down in cycling. You would get into winning magazine. You'd get into Velo news. You get into like bike mag, um, really like or mountain bike action and maybe on like one website. And so it was a pretty easy landscape to understand if you were an athlete or you were a consumer of that. Now there's social media, like you said, but there's also, um, you know, titles that come and go. There are, um, you know, creative content pieces that are done by brands, which have a value of their own. And that kind of like feeds into how it is in ski and snowboard, which was contests were eclipsed by whether or not you were in a movie. Mm. And so you could, your, your segment in a movie could make a career versus winning a race. Um, So I think like cycling, like ski and snowboard is a lot like the music industry where it's really just becoming harder to pick your, your battles if you win a battle, there is money for sure. Yeah. Like if you, if you have a very specific skill set, and let's say, let's go to, um, 
let's go to road racing. If you have a very specific skill set where you can time trial like crazy, you can make a couple million bucks a year as a time trialist. Same as a sprinter, but you have to be the best sprinter by a lot. Right. Um, to be a climber kind of fits in that. But if you're an average, which is not average at all, world tour racer who races at a high level, men or women, the money you're going to make is not that much. So I think in, in that regard, yeah, there was more before because there were fewer right. people. There were fewer racers, there were fewer races, but there was more money funneled into that like bottleneck. Um, mountain biking, without Red Bull TV in the last five years, those riders would not be making the money they were making before, but they also wouldn't be dealing with Vanderpool and Pidcock, mm. you know, coming into race. Yeah. Um, so I think like to answer your your original question, it seems like there's more money now, but it's actually less money spread out across more people. So to make a very good living now is probably harder than it was before, but you also have a lot more flexibility to do it your own way, which has its own benefits as well. Yeah. And kind of like the personality of the person shine through a little more versus like you can get paid based on who you are as a human versus getting paid as a racer only, you know? Yeah. My, my career kind of transitioned from both of those worlds where I was still, I was still being told, um, I was still being told don't go to college so you can be the best bike racer <laughs> you can be, which now on the men's side, Sepp Kuss, you know, graduated college women's side, Kate Courtney went to Stanford, Chris Blevins went to Cal Poly, like, these are legitimate schools with high academic workloads and they're the best in their sport. Yeah. And, and I was the one told not to go to college, <laughs> um, which is, you know, kind of, kind of funny, but I was also like transitioning into social media where I was getting shit from my team director for having a Twitter account and really being on Twitter. Yeah. It was not, I, I was wasting my time. And then like Instagram comes around and, you know, you, you kind of like hold up, Hey, you know, I've got this many followers and like, there's a photo of me with the team sponsors on it. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm helping. Aren't I? Yeah. And they're like, yeah, but you're not doing your job as a racer. And it's like, well, kind of, yeah. So now it's, it's really kind of gone beyond that. So, you know, now when we talk to a world tour racer, who's getting ready for the tour, um, best, most successful ones are the ones who can do both. So Vanderpool yeah. on the men's side can, can win the races, but also be really interesting on social media with a huge following and fan club, just like, well, Fenert, you know, and, and Annemiek Van Voyten on the women's side, um, you know, Marianne Voss, like they are doing both and they're reaping the rewards. They're making a ton of money because of it. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, and, and I feel like that's like a, it's a conversation that isn't even necessary to have. Like, I, I think we both get it, but people don't understand this, especially like young athletes. They're like, okay, I've said this a million times, but you have to be a marketer as an athlete and you also have to be an athlete as an athlete now to like really make it. It's, it's really hard. I think in that respect, the whole job has become way more complicated. Yeah, and actually now in my role as Strava, I have conversations with riders where I, I have to tell them like, Hey, if you do this, this way, you'll actually have more value. So when your contract is up, you should be able to sell yourself for more. Like that's the whole point of this. Yeah. 
it's not, it's not that you just keep doing the same thing for less money. Um, but you know, that it, it really is. It's funny how like some riders or athletes will get it and some won't, you know, being, being involved in a company like Cannondale for a long time, like I have, um, or Red Bull for, for 11 years of my career, like there's, there is a certain level of expectation that you have to understand the, the scope of what you can do. And then you kind of drill down into what you, what is actually possible. And the education is so different than it was 20 years ago. And it's going to be different in, in another 20 years from what it is now, just yeah. like the evolution of the sport. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, Tim, I'm going to let you go. Um, it's about that time. So, uh, where can people find you on social? We'll have you back on to do a little deeper dive on some stuff later <laughs> on in the, in the summer, maybe. Um, but yeah, where can people find you on social? Where can people get at you? Yeah, well, no, um, anytime at Tim Johnson CX on Instagram, Twitter, uh, find me on Strava. Definitely like my, my go-to there. Um, <laughs> and yeah, dude, I, I didn't even get a chance to tell you that, like, I learned how to ski on schemo skis, which is the hardest thing in the world to do. Um, <laughs> I have since, I have since gone to sleep every night for years, dreaming about turns. Um, I've been able to ski powder and I've just like developed an addiction that is going to ruin me. Yes. And I think that that's okay. Oh, yeah. um, it's so okay. But like, alders versus like shitty maple saplings. Like, I don't know how to describe <laughs> the difference. Um, you know, like, is it okay to have totally blown out poles that just look like shit and are bent? Yeah. Or is that considered like a faux pas? Um, <laughs> I have filled up my boots with so much sweat that I've gotten trench foot oh, and what? I have like ripped the skin off of my heel so bad that it's taken weeks to grow back. And <laughs> that normal, I mean, I got I have a lot of questions, man. And, and really like where, where can I, what dump can I throw my shot, my shifts into? Um, and if not, if not a landfill, is the recycling program available oh my somewhere? God. Oh fuck. That was a good one. Um, I don't, I don't know what dump I, I would assume any will take them. They're probably used to it at, to some level at this point. Um, if you have a certain age of them, I know they will take them back and replace, uh, the non-functional toes and heels, especially the toe if it's an issue. So you can do that. Uh, the pole thing bent poles make you cooler, uh, for sure. Like that's a, the poles are like the most, that's never changed. That like that's the same. Ski skis suck. That's yes, a hundred percent. Pow is the best thing on earth. And uh, what else was there? Trench foot. That's fucking disgusting. Alder, that's, a, that's a you issue. <laughs> Alder and sap, saplings. Yeah, yeah, dude. I don't know. There's so many things we could talk about ski stuff for fucking hours. But I don't want to like I don't want to keep you Sweet. from other meetings. But yes. All right, next time. Next part time. Two. Next time. Part two. Part two. We'll just talk about ski shit. <laughs> Sweet. Sounds awesome. good to me. I'm in. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. I appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate right, it. Later.